close the door behind you. You're now in the green room. Hello and welcome everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Green Room. I'm in here today uh, with uh, someone who I've admired on the platform over the last year or so. I think I've, we featured you uh, twice or three times. three times. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Marcus Lolo. Can you tell the people hello? Give a quick Hey, everybody. It is my pleasure to be in the green room. I have expressed a great many times how happy and ecstatic it makes me that we have this platform that allows people, musicians from um, the Caribbean, all over the Caribbean to share their own perspective. To have this space that is unique to us is invaluable and I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, man. And uh, I'm excited to have you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, Yes, sir. Uh, I tend to like to start out asking people a little bit about their journey. I'm very interested in people's stories and how they got into music or or became the the people that they are today. Right. Well, earlier when I was speaking with you off camera, you talked about the space um, not just being about music or not just being a space where we only talk about music. Right. Um, Right. So... I'll try to get as personal as I can, you know, about my journey and, and how I got here. Um, I, I was born in the U S of a Haitian mother, Haitian parents, both Haitian. Um, My mother lived in Haiti at the time, but um, was here um, at the time when I was born by choice and mainly for um, well, as a result of the failures of the Haitian healthcare system, and we'll get into that a little a little later in time. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was I was fortunate enough to have grown up in Haiti for the first fifteen to sixteen years of my life. In fact, I turned sixteen in the in the U.S. But that entire the beginning of that year, I was I was I spent in Haiti, and that has allowed me to develop. Uh, a dual perspective on life, that of a Haitian living in Haiti, but also of a Haitian living abroad. So I would say that even though I'm I'm an American citizen, I've had the full-blown immigrant experience, you know, yeah. coming into the U.S. But we'll dial it back to the beginning, and I'll tell you, much like a lot of um, African-American artists and Caribbean artists, I've fallen in love with music or with playing music um, through the church, you know, I, I grew up in church. Um, my father wasn't a pastor, but used to preach a lot. So I traveled from church to church on on, on the Haitian countryside with him um, many summers, my brother and I. And um, I must have been five or six years old um, when I think, well, as far as I can remember, that I was fixated on this guy playing the keyboard at church. And I, you know, I was so interested in what he was doing that I would just stand there and stare at him from behind the pulpit, too. And so every time I got a chance, I would just, you know, climb on the bench and, and try and play something, you know, um, in between services or after church or something like that. Um, now, I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist tradition. And one time they were having a Sabbath opening service and I climbed on the board. I, well, they had an upright piano. So picture this, right? I'm like seven years old, right? I'm not tall enough that they can see my head and my feet are dangling. They can't even touch the pedal, but some way, somehow 
I ended up being in the right key. I don't have perfect pitch. I think it was just my, you know, my luck that yeah. day that it just so happened to be in C. But I, I don't think I was conscious enough to play in different keys at that time. And I remember the experience. Um, and how old did remember, you say you were? I think I was seven at the time. Okay. Right. I think I was seven because I was born in 93. And I remember that time being the millennium it was already after 2000 so i think i must have been i must have been seven already by that time and i remember the experience first of all people were um people were very you know ecstatic over the fact that they had never seen me play before and they were like oh look at this kid he can play and i believe the hype too to be quite honest i could do the bare minimum um um but i was very you know, it was such a positive um, experience for me. It reinforced yeah. my belief in myself right. to be able to play the piano when really I, I didn't know how to play then yet. Um, but yeah, that's how I, I fell in love with music partly. And then obviously I kept watching the pianist at church and he was, to this day, I still believe that he is a very talented musician. You know, he was very tasteful. His musical choices were tasteful. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, fascinated with some of the things that I'd heard him do. I didn't know what jazz was then, yeah. but I thought of it as cartoon music. You know, a lot of the American cartoons had jazz music. And yeah. so I was like, yo, he can play like the cartoons. You know, that was that was something that kind of drew my attention. But right, right, right there, that's amazing because even at that young age, you were able to identify the genre or at least the musical pattern, right? Or at least associated with something that was familiar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so... I was, um, so then after that, my father realized that I had some kind of an aptitude for music, right? I don't know what, what, I don't know, gave it away to him, but he figured that some way, somehow I was interested in music. So he had one of those little toy pianos that in lieu of strings have those um, metallic rods in them that create like almost not even a honky tonk, like a a celeste kind of sound. Right. And he realized that I could reproduce some of the melodies that I'd been hearing at church. Mm -hmm. And man, when I realized I could do that, I just tried to play everything. And obviously when I started in the wrong key, say I started something in G or something like that. I didn't, I couldn't figure out that I had to play an F sharp and not an F natural. And it always sounded wrong to me. And it'd be, you know, so frustrating or something. Right. But even then I think my interest was sparked. And to this day, man, I can't remember a time where I've seen a piano and not have wanted to play. <laughs> Just, you know, I can't think of too many things that I love as much as playing music. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous how much of, a, of an epiphany, a lifelong epiphany that was. Because the moment I realized I loved music, that never left me. I've heard of musicians talking about, you know, a period of hiatus, like, you know, a period of, I don't know, burnout, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. I've never heard that. I've never, I've always been enthusiastic about playing music, talking about music, teaching music has just been my passion. And I know it's a cliche because people say that a lot, but I think I'm maybe one of, one of the very few people to know for sure what their passion is. I know for sure that, that, that it's music. Yeah. Um, and I think right there, that's beautiful. And honestly, speaking to burnout, I think that's a very interesting discussion because 
most often, I think that comes from one of two places. Uh, the first place I think it comes from is that w- when someone is doing music as a career right. and wants a certain lifestyle or mm-hmm. has certain responsibilities, mm-hmm. sometimes you get caught up in, oh, uh, this isn't cutting it. I, I-, I, need a- I need to do a little bit more or, you know, gigs aren't coming in. I, I need to to just shift. I'm just going to go drive trucks, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, but right. the other place it comes from, I think, is emotional trauma. Hmm. I think people get depressed, uh, hit a wall musically and feel, oh, I just can't get better, you know? And uh, that starts to suck away from your passion. It starts to, to kill that 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 fire that was inside of you and it, it, it's it's a really sad thing when it happens because some people don't survive it some people just stop playing and just kind of and i really i really believe that when you have that thing that you just talked about that passion for music that that where the music is inside of you it's a part of you when you stop playing it's like part of you dies yeah it itches almost, you know, I go on vacation for a couple of days and I, you know, it goes, I go too long without touching the piano. It almost feels like it's, okay. I don't want to be over dramatic and say it's calling to me, but it definitely feels like a need yeah. that, that demands to be fulfilled. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's that type of thing. Speaking of burnout, I think there are a lot of different things that may cause burnout, but um, sometimes it's the lack of resourcefulness and how to solve the, the problems around music, not so much the problems with music itself. Mm. Like, I'll tell you this. Yeah. I think the moment one becomes aware of the vastness of what there is to learn about music, you can no longer believe that you can't get any better. Right. There's too much to learn. <laughs> if, if you can't get better at this one thing, guaranteed 100%, you can get better at something else. I'll give you something like a very simple example. Some of us play really well by ear, but aren't able to sing intervals off the top of our head. Like if I say, hey, here's the one, sing me a flat seven. (laughs) I'm saying regardless of what kind of musician you are, if you can do that versus not being able to do it, it definitely is something that you can help. You don't even need to play your instrument to get good at that. You see, and if you're passionate enough about music, you'll want to get good at as many things as you can get good at, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, for me, and again, I'm only speaking from a personal standpoint. Um, I'm already too deep in to decide not to care about music anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm already too sold on the magic of, of, um, of this science. I think music is science to a great extent. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, just like you, having had an engineering background myself, I think, you know, the mathematical similarities <laughs> between music <laughs> and other sciences are just, let's just take timing, for example. Right. It's, it's literally doing fractions in real time. Yeah. Right? It's dividing in real time in a way that is performed. So, so when you do math, right, and you divide, you divide conceptually in your mind. Mm-hmm. Music is probably one of the very few things where you keep dividing numbers in real time over and over and over again. 
right? Mm-hmm. And you're saying, Done. based on proportionality, mm-hmm. if you think of one note, how can you equally divide that in, in three parts, for example, for a triplet? And then right after, do it, uh, do it in four, right? We're split into four parts, sometimes playing, sometimes not playing, taking into account the fact that you're missing one beat there, but you're still dividing by four. Now, we can take that a notch further. You're doing polyrhythms in some cases, right? <laughs> you're doing two divisions, which you don't do in math. Yeah. at the exact same time in real time yeah. right and again this could be a whole different discussion but the point is once you're aware of all of that i don't know the fascination <laughs> doesn't leave you man i mean uh-huh. don't get me wrong i've gotten uh-huh. tired of working on the same thing right let's talk about burnout right say you're doing music more out of duty than out of enjoyment Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a different thing. Being in music school now, for example, if you're working on a Chopin ballad for like four months, man, and some parts are just it's just like athleticism. It's not like you understand it conceptually and you're automatically able to play it. There is a mechanical element. Your muscles have to get used to playing certain patterns that your body doesn't recognize. The only way that's achievable is by doing a little bit at a time consistently over a long period of time, just like building muscle. That can get exhausting. That can create burnout because this is exercise, seemingly at least for the sake of exercise. And the brain gets tired of that stuff, man. You get bored. You You need variety to excite you, kind of to put you in a different zone. So that can create burnout. But your love for the music, the sensation that you get after having worked on something four, five, six months and finally being able to play it, there's no substitute for that, brother. Right, <laughs> just right, saying, right. You know. I remember there was a, it was actually an embarrassing story. So there was this basis that I, I, I admired um, uh, at the time uh, I was in Chicago um, and Honestly, truth be told, um, I think we lost your webcam there. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I mean, I'm going to try to fix it. Hold okay. on. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah. So truth be told, at the time, I was kind of cocky. <laughs> I was kind of cocky. Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I reached out to him. I'm like, hey, man, you know, uh, I kind of want your advice on what else I could work on. You know, right. like, you know, I'm trying to to see. I kind of hit a wall, and you know, you know, just wanted some some tips from you on. And he just started to list stuff out, right, <laughs> right. And the list just kept getting longer. Humble you, sick like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes yeah, we yeah. say that and we don't actually mean it. Right? <laughs> some, I think part of our being able to express ourselves is our confidence in the fact that we're able to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's just like anything else. Too much of it can be bad, right. right? We ask for criticism. If we get too much criticism, then we start going back into, we lose some of that confidence because deep down, Although we want to get better, we also want approval. 
Right. We want approval. We want people to, we want praise. Everybody does. You know, everybody needs that. So I think it is incumbent on the people who have fans and admirers to be tactful in the way that they deliver their messages, right? You, you can tell somebody, you know, that they need to work on something, but be careful how you say it, because if your goal is to encourage them, then the wording matters, right? The tone matters, Yeah. you know? Uh, some of us can take a good dose of, man, you can't play. You need to go back to your practice room. Some of us can, can you know, kind of extract the positive message from that. Right. But we shouldn't have to, not necessarily. And right? also, it, it's for some people, it just kills them. Yeah, and for it, that, that, is the, that is the other side of the coin. It's that for some people, it just takes away the passion altogether. Now... You know, whether these people are truly passionate or not, that's not our call. Yeah. The goal is to spread positivity as much as, as is possible. Um, and uh, today, especially your platform, you know, gathering all Caribbean musicians together, or at least curating, you know, the entire catalog, uh, uh-huh. using different videos from different musicians who sometimes may feel like they're not getting any visibility. Um, it serves that kind of purpose, right? Yeah, it's it's one of my greatest joys to see a video with, let's say, a hundred views, right? Um, and I, 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 as I've said in the past, in captions on the platform, I'm not looking for the views or likes on these videos. I'm looking for right. the musicianship. I'm looking for the talent. That's I'm right. looking for for what this person is giving. And you'll see a video with 123 views and you post it on the platform and it gets Suddenly it's 700, 1,000. Yeah, yeah and, man. And, and as your platform grows, this, this visibility only, right. first of all, these features are going to be more and more coveted. People are going to want to be in that spot a lot more. Right. But also, what a legacy, man. What a legacy. Imagine somebody who's really talented but isn't really versed <clears throat> in you know, self-marketing or self-promotion. Mm-hmm. And some way, somehow you discover them because this is what social media has allowed us to do back in the day. Right. There were gatekeepers to being known. Yeah. And <laughs> fame isn't synonymous with success. But really, if the goal is to share the music, the more people you share it with, the better. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Let's be honest with that. Um, so, yeah, it's already a legacy of unspeakable proportions to be able to make known to more people what somebody else is doing without them actively putting an effort into it other than the fact that they've shared it themselves on their own yeah. platform. Yeah. Um, and that that's humbling right there, man. Uh, <laughs> in, in fact, I'm going to throw in here that uh, Eli folks, uh, Eli is the other, the other side of Caribbean cadence. Um, right. He's uh, normally running the platform during the weekend. Um, Eli actually brought forward the idea that we need to uh, do a little bit more education and letting musicians know how to use social media as well. Very important. Um, and Very I, important. I, I Man. told him it's a great idea, you know, and... Um, Kudos but, to Eli. I don't know him, but hey, <laughs> you got the right idea. Yeah, man. Um, I myself am growing into not just learning about these things, because I learn about them, but good God. 
do I have trouble applying them sometimes, <laughs> right? Yeah. But very few of us have not, no, let me rephrase that and not say very few, but I don't think as many of us understand the magnitude of social media's impact on all kinds of tendencies, all businesses, all kind of vocations in life. But I think its influence is much more prevalent in people that are in the arts. I've read a a book by an author named um, Austin Kleon called Show Your Work. It's a tiny book, man. It really is. Show Your Work? Show Your Work. Mm -hmm. And the whole purpose of it is, again, it's multifaceted, but I'm going to focus on the fact that it lays out the importance of sharing your experience, right? Process versus product. A lot of us musicians think we need a finished product, we need a finished song, we need to finish something and then post it to social media. And this is just one nugget of what you can get from the book. It's worth the money. I encourage you to buy it. Austin, if you're listening to this, please cut me a check. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I I think um, the goal is sometimes one of the goals is to share what you're going through your story as it happens people don't think of that aspect what do you think vloggers do it's not oh yeah i'm going to vegas hey i'm in vegas no it's here's the road trip here's what we ran into here's what happened here and there and the other so if you're learning a new piece trying to pretend to i don't know to be so accomplished that you haven't practiced or that you only show final products robs the people of the experience of seeing you work through it, but also robs you of the experience of increased awareness by sharing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's important. You understand something more as you explain it. That's, that's, that's the way I like to think of it. So if you're working on a really difficult piece and you're transcribing it, instead of sharing one video, where you have it done, you can share 50 videos as you go through it and encounter some challenges and show people how you go about, I don't know, overcoming those things, you know, Mm -hmm. one way or the other. People who have nothing to do with music will sit around and watch you do that for one reason and one reason only. Storytelling is one of the most effective ways of communication. Yeah. As human beings, we get invested in stories and journeys. It's, it's, it's part of our DNA, man. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, think, I think that we, we musicians, creators, creatives, as we're called today, should be more aware um, of the fact that we need to share our process more, right? And I, again, I'm guilty of not applying this as you know, thoroughly as I understand it. It's, it's a process for me as well, no pun intended. But um, still, I think the overwhelming message is clear, is don't wait until you've done it. Show people how you're doing it. Yeah. Music and, is a vast thing. There's, you're not going to lose anything from doing that. If, if anything, you're going to understand what you're doing some more. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, another benefit I want to point out of social media uh, that kind of aligns with uh, the, the benefit in showing the journey is also accountability for the journey. So yeah, what, what I mean by that is uh, when I started learning guitar, uh, regular guitar, uh, I'm a right. bassist. Right. 
I knew for a fact that if I just bought this thing, brought it to my house and decided to learn it, I would not learn it. Right. (laughs) For a fact. So uh, I I said, okay, I'm going to set this arbitrary goal of a thousand hours of practice. Right. And I'm not just going to set that goal. I'm going to make it public. Hmm. So I've said it on the Caribbean Cadence platform. (laughs) I've said it. I've said it on my regular Instagram right. um, and I've said it so publicly that now I have the pressure of all my followers to finish those thousand hours. Or you're a liar. <laughs> or I'm a liar. And that, that, that little nugget of accountability, it goes a long way, man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, you know, to, to take this one step further, some musicians even have a separate account called their practice journal to allow people to see their progress to through sometimes three months of one piece, maybe like different sections of it, but one piece, you know, again, that's, you know, uh, that that's not one way or the other. You can decide to do it or not do it. It doesn't take anything away from you, but the point is share the journey, share the journey, embrace the beauty of the successes and, you know, the frustration of, of the pitfalls that you sometimes get. But um, I think the pursuit of art, of the ability to com- communicate through one art form or the other is so sacred. It's like, it's like speaking another language, that it's worth doing all that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really worth doing all that because in addition to you using your words and every other conventional means of communication, you have that. You know, every now and again, we get glimpses of the perfection of that, right? Like you're playing a tune on stage. There's not a lot of people in the room, but there's like one musical moment where people are really connecting. They're paying attention. Mm -hmm. They're feeling what you're doing. And if you tap into that and speak what you speak there in the moment, that can only happen once. It's like magic. Capturing that on video is a snapshot. That's, that's what one of my professors told me, right? He said, recordings are snapshots of, of moments that only happen once. The, the, I don't know, the plenitude of that is a one-off. It's, 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 and, you know, some of us are fortunate to experience that a great many times in life, and kudos to all of y'all who get that. But that kind of connection to other people is what we should try, strive to reproduce every single time. And so whether it be on social media, whether it be live in public, connect. The goal is to do that. You're not playing to show off what you can do. In some cases, you can too, right? That's a form of communication, yeah. right? But the, at the end of the day, I think just like speech, just like literature, just like anything else, the goal is to send a message across. So figure out what that message is by developing your own artistic philosophy and your own, you know, your own style. viewpoint, right? Your own artistic viewpoint. But after that, the only thing that's left to do is sharing, share, yeah. just share. Uh, so w- we've kind of come a, a distance away, uh, but <laughs> right. I, I want to rein us back towards um, your your story because you gave us you gave us the beginning, right? Where you. You, you told us about how you actually started out and how the interest was kindled. And um, but 
now you're 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 working on other things and you've developed right. uh, far beyond those days. Oh, so yeah. tell us about the transition in between those those two phases. Man, I think the only way to make this short is to take you through some of, of the different milestones that I've had. Um, I have to take it back to church. Whenever I talk about music, I have to talk about church. Um, not because I'm a church fanatic, but because I believe that it's the only, it's one of the only places left in society where people are given free reign over their creativity and are given an audience to listen to them for free. Having an audience in front of you is a privilege. Being in church, you are in a mostly encouraging environment. And I say mostly because it's not always encouraging if we're going to get real, but a mostly encouraging environment where people are actually rooting for you to get good. You know, they encourage you, they'll clap for you, depending on which, which part you're from, <laughs> which part of the world you're from, because in Haitian churches in Haiti, there was no clapping. I don't know about now, <laughs> at least in SDA churches when I was growing up. But anyway, that's besides the point. So taking it back there, I think church instilled in me a lot of confidence in my art because it allowed me a space to express myself and encouraged me to continue doing so. So by the time, now I started in a small local church in, in, um, in a suburb of Port-au-Prince called Kafu. And I, you know, did very little things there. I think one time I got a chance to accompany the children's choir. To be honest, I don't even think we're in the same key, brother, but I, I played, <laughs> you know, I played. But by the time I turned 12, I started going to university church. And that is the SDA University um, auditorium where, you know, the congregation gathers. And I may be wrong, but I think the congregation must have been about a thousand people strong. And j just to be clear, this is still in Port-au-Prince. This is in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Yes. And so now my mother now owns a school. I had started going to my mother's school up until about the sixth grade. Now, by the sixth grade, I started going to um, the the um, Seventh Adventist middle school that was there. And so I met a lot of people. It was a much bigger school, like 2000 kids. Right. So I met other kids who were already well versed in playing church music and playing by ear and doing that. So the challenge was there. And then by the time I turned 12, 13, I had I had joined a choir, which I ended up leading for whatever reason. I don't remember how the transition happened, but I, it had been started by someone who was musically oriented. But it, I think I had proven my ability to kind of teach harmony parts and doing other things. So it turned out that I ended up becoming the choir director at like 13. Now picture this. I had some 20 year olds in there. I had some 11 year olds in there. I had some 15 year olds in there. But that said, I was definitely among the youngest, if not the youngest. But the kind of personal responsibility that that teaches you at that yeah, young age, leadership, yeah. leadership, right? To lead people who are, you know, willingly submitting themselves to your leadership um, um, is a challenge because they're giving it to you willingly, but they can just as easily take it away if you're not doing your job the way you're supposed to. So it forces a standard of excellence upon you. And, you know, I think all the people who were on my path then who allowed me that space to have the choir perform at some events, you know, that were well attended, 
and have a goal to work towards. Like if we knew we had a big concert coming up in three months, you know, it's just like <laughs> this entire three months. And I drew from like Kirk Franklin and all these. And sometimes I didn't even know I had sat down with other you know, older musicians to literally walk me through chord changes that I couldn't figure out by just by listening to them. Mm -hmm. But I can explain the kind of drive that that is. There is no, you know, 24 seven electricity in Haiti. One time I have this vivid memory in my mind where I was working on a song for the choir and there was this big um, dinner table at my house that sat 12 and I was small enough to crawl under it. I was working through chord shapes at like two in the morning and my mother woke up in the middle of the night. She was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, but this is how much of a burning passion that was for me. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I had turned 14, I had, I think I had garnered some respect amongst my peers. Um, I had to give a super big shout out to my first, um, I guess, piano teacher who encouraged me to play by ear. And his name was Samuel Dorval. His, uh, um, he, uh, he attended the Haitian State University for, for music at that time. I don't think it still exists. And he had, he's the, one of the only piano teachers at that time, to my knowledge, that had an ear training component to the course. So you had to come and learn, you know, music on paper and do all of that. But he would give me one hymn because he was a church musician. He would give me one hymn every week and I would go, he'd say, play it just as it is in the hymnal. And then I would bring it, you know, back just as it is in the hymnal. And then he'll say, go back and play your arrangement. And then by the time I'd, you know, by the time I'd come back, I'd play my arrangement, but then he'd have his arrangement, which was often just so mind blowing to me at that time. Cause he developed his own style about how to play hymns and stuff. And so to this day, I can almost instantly come up with a structured arrangement for a hymn because it was so instilled in me at that time. So um, I got to say, man, that was the turning point to me because I had started understanding the value of having my own voice. Fast forward, I turn uh, 15, right? It's my second to last year in high school in Haiti. Oh. It sounds like those years were really formative years. Oh, they were incredibly formative. I mean, 12 to 15 definitely were the defining years of my identity as a musician. That's the, there's no doubt about that. But now <laughs> the big things happening, right? So I turned 15. I, you know, I'm in my second to last year of high school in Haiti. And, you know, my mother sits me down. She was like, hey, you were born in the U.S. It's going to be time for you to go to college very soon. I think you should leave this year. So, you know, it's August the 29th, 2009. I've got nothing but a backpack and like a button down and some jeans and some church shoes. Yeah. And I'm on a JetBlue flight to New York City, man. <laughs> and my first year of high school. So now. I'm, you know, I learned, I spent most of my years in Haiti learning in French. So I was fluent enough in French that I, I qualified for honest French here. And I'm sitting in honest French and I'm listening to, I'm listening to a jazz band playing I've Got Rhythm. Mm -hmm. And they sound pretty good from where I am. So I'm on the, I'm on the second floor and they're playing on the fourth floor. 
Now my English is minimal at that time, right? So I'm like, so, I gotta find this music. Up. So you're in you're in French class. Yeah. And while you're sitting there, you you start to overhear a couple I'm floors. Overhearing, okay. yeah, I'm overhearing a brass section. You know, and it's swinging too. You know, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, where is that happening? Now, again, I had good conversational English, but I had a really strong Haitian accent and mm-hmm. I, it was hard for me to be understood by native New Yorkers and stuff. So I, so now during my, um, my uh, free period, if, if you, you know, if, if you're familiar with like the way um, um, uh, American high school is structured, you have a different class every period, but sometimes there's a gap in your schedule and you have a free period where you just go to the cafeteria and wait it out, do whatever you need to do, your homework, whatever. Mm-hmm. Instead of going to the cafeteria like I'm supposed to, I venture up to the third floor and I realize there's no music there. And boom, I go to the fourth floor, man. And there's all these pictures of students playing concerts and there's all that going on. And, you know, I see kids playing at um, Lincoln Center and stuff like this. It's Lincoln freaking center, man. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm losing my mind here. And so now everybody's in class. We're in the, you know, we're in the middle of the period and I'm one student roaming the halls. That's not permitted. Yeah. So I see a teacher. He's like, where's your hall pass? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, yeah. It's like, where, let me see your schedule. I get that. I'm, I'm like, I understand schedule. So I pull my bag out. I'm like, okay, yeah, here's my schedule. It's like, we have a free period. Why are you not in the cafeteria yet? So I ask him, where's the music? He's like, <laughs> he's like, do you play? I said, yeah, I play the piano. He said, you can play the piano. I said, yeah. He said, how well? I said, very well. He said, <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have said that. But he said, oh, yeah. I said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, he's like, okay, cool. So he walks me in front. He walks me into a rehearsal, a choir rehearsal. I think at the time, 120 voices strong. Jeez. I speak minimal English. So he's like, choir. hey. So he, yeah. And he goes in there. My teacher's name was Robert Koch, man. <laughs> Bless him. He goes, hey, Koch, this guy says he can play the piano very well. <laughs> so Koch goes, sit him down. <laughs> he stops rehearsal, man. Can you imagine? So he you have 120 rehears- spectators right now. Just That's so- my thing. I could have just frozen. <laughs> but I had that youthful, almost arrogance and confidence in me. So I'm like, whatever. So I muster up the best piano solo version of um, Gershwin's Summertime as I possibly can. I, I, I assume that I'm killing right in, the, in that moment. And it wasn't so much that I was killing. It was, I think that I was doing pretty well for a high school player at that time, or at least for the caliber of musicians that they had, because they were coincidentally looking for pianists at that time. Okay. The band teachers, here's me. Play, so, so now it's just the trumpet teacher. And the choir director listening to me. The choir director is a trained pianist from Queens College. He's like, well, what do you know? Like, you can play. <laughs> so now he, he's like, come find me next period. And I come find him again. And he walks me into jazz band rehearsal. He's like, hey, Burkle, I think this kid can play. It's like, play for me whatever you played before this. And I play Summertime again. And in the wrong key, too, because I played it in C minor. Mm-hmm. And he was like, 
oh, what do you have third period? I'm like, French. He's like, where are you from? I said, Haiti. He's like, you speak French already. Come with me. <laughs> so, he's like, so do you prefer jazz band or do you prefer French? I'm like, jazz band. He was like, okay. He walks me in. We, um, we, uh, we go to my guidance counselor and he removes me from French and have her put me in jazz band, I think like a month into school. Jeez. So I hadn't even started at the right time. Mm-hmm. rest is history man i mean i played jazz band year after year by the time i got to well not year after year because i only had two years of high school i came here i did 11th and 12th grade but by the time i got to my last um marking period of 12th grade most of my classes were music classes and then i graduated high school and went to engineering school <laughs> <laughs> so that was stalled um and then what what, um, what, what kind of this um engineering did you do civil civil okay all right yeah And so, but the love of music never left me. I played for churches over the weekend. You know, I've met some people on Broadway who've given me some opportunities. I became the music director for uh, an annual play at the National Black Theater in Harlem. And so that kind of kept me motivated. But I got to say, through all of it, I knew, I was like, by the time I go to a different university, I'm going to double major. I'm going to double major. I'm gonna, you know, and then one day, I was in a very precarious academic situation because I really don't think I was quite ready to go into engineering. I didn't do the groundwork for it. And so I needed, I needed to boost my grades. Right. I needed to boost my grades using something I know. So two weeks before the semester started, I decided I was going to audition for music school. And I'm going to tell you what I think got me into music school. I went and played so usually they asked you for they, they would normally ask you for one baroque piece one romantic piece right 18th century classical music and then one contemporary piece which would be something like uh ravel or wc or something like that something contemporary classical mm-hmm. i did a bach fugue a prelude and fugue number one for my baroque i did a chopin um nocturne number two in e flat for my 18th century piece um and and then instead of doing a, a modern piece i did a beethoven i think the second movement of the moonlight sonata and then for the modern piece i did my own arrangement of danny boy <laughs> you know how cocky that is <laughs> it's like, it's like and for my modern piece okay. and somebody you know all these music phds are sitting around waiting for you to say some big name they recognize i'll be doing my own arrangement of danny boy they're like oh okay you got guts <laughs> let's see what you've got rest is history man i auditioned you know and then this um this professor came to me and she whispered in my ear you're in now they're not supposed to tell you until you get an email yeah. <laughs> she's like you're in and oh, oh oh right before that i gotta say this one thing i'm sorry i know i'm being abundant right now no you're good but um it turns out when because i go audition for engineer uh, for music school i'm totally unaware of who's a professor there who does what i just want an out i don't want to have bad grades i'm trying to bring my gba up three days before my audition i get an email at two in the morning And it says, Marcus, I've heard that you wanted to audition for the piano department. Um, why don't you come, uh, come to my office tomorrow and play me something before the actual audition? And then it's signed, 
Eric Hubner, Stephen Kellen, and Anna Maria Chair of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. So I'm freaking out, man. Oh, the current chair of the New York field is about to be my piano professor if I can audition and pass. And he's asking me to come in and play before the audition. I wasn't freaking out before that, but I lost it. I'm not going to lie to you. I was pacing my small little college bedroom at three in the morning trying to figure out if I still want to do this. And he turned out to be one of the most encouraging voices so far in my college career. And mm. I'll be very grateful to him after I graduate. But yeah, it, it, that's, that's pretty much the story. And then, as you all know, I currently um, released some music. My Haitian identity is really strong in what I do. So I don't label myself a jazz pianist, but I do a lot of jazz work. And my music is very jazz oriented. I play straight ahead jazz a lot of the time with my combo. But yeah, this... Basically, music has been tugging me in its direction my entire life. And I think now that I've finally listened, I'm doing music full time. I run a music school here that is a nonprofit in Buffalo that, you know, teaches students and I mean, children um, between five and 18 uh, of um, Buffalo's underserved communities, how to play various types of instrument. And I'm fortunate to, to serve as their director. It's the Love Supreme School of Music. Um, I... I'm music minister at two different churches here in Buffalo. You know, I obviously do my own gigging work. If, if, you know, that makes sense. I produce music as well. I've collaborated with some people all over the world. So yeah, man, it's, it's, it's a blessing, but yeah, just this afternoon, that's a journey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing your journey, man. Yes, sir. Uh, just this afternoon uh, in, in a way of preparing folks for this conversation, I shared a video that um, you actually shared on your platform about right. a single. Can you tell us a little bit about your process for coming uh, up with that single? And it seems to be a kind of tribute, right? Oh yeah, it is a tribute and it's very dear to my heart. Now, Hayes music legacy as a culture is very vast and it's, it, it, you know, it's deep as well. The tradition is strong. I mean, I think there is something like 50 different African rhythms with actual names that can be played in the, in the Haitian traditional um, um, arsenal. And so in my, well, not in my research, one day I discovered an article about um, this, Haitian artist that had passed away and it was from the Washington post. And then the New York times posted about it. And, you know, the entire internet was just aflame. People were mourning the death of this person whose name sounded familiar, but that I, as a musician was not familiar with. And his name is Emmanuel Charlemagne, Manu Charlemagne, and, 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 um, and, um, as is affectionately known in, in Creole and Haitian Creole. Um, so I, I made it my purpose to, to go in and check out his music. So the moment I started listening, I wanted to kick myself for not knowing about this guy. He's like this social political activist that is protesting at the time the um, uh, dictatorship of the Duvaliers, right? He gets, um, he's at the base. His music is actually one of the pillars of, um, of the establishment of the first democratically elected government of Haiti. So basically- uh, real, real quick, I just wanted you to tell the viewers and listeners who the Duvaliers are. Oh man, the Duvaliers are this family um, that whose dictatorship was Haiti's government for roughly 
I want to say 30 years if I'm not getting it wrong. Um, yeah, roughly 30, 29 years because um, Papa Doc Duvalier, as he was known, he was a doctor, right? A country do- doctor who became one of the most ruthless dictators of, of, of Caribbean history, not just Haitian history. In fact, he was known throughout the world to be a, a totalitarian in, in the way that he go- uh, governed. And he had, um, he had uh, an entire civilian militia that enforced his government who abused people in unimaginable sorts of ways. I mean, things that you only read about. It's really atrocious, some of the different things that were done in his name under his regime, you know, to his knowledge. Um, But yeah, and so the Duvaliers were against anybody who spoke or any ideology that was against their government, anything that spoke of democracy, anything that spoke of personal freedom, anything that went uh, went against anything that the Duvaliers stand for, they would have their, you know, that militia, they were also their spies. The moment you were said to be talking bad about the government, anything could happen to you, including death. You know, in fact, one of my mentors um, lost his dad at, I think, six years old and his mother went to the Haitian palace, to the national palace, and saw her husband being dragged out with his eye hanging out of his socket, both his legs being broken. I mean, atrocious things, you know? And, and so anyway, that was the legacy of the Duvaliers. And the, the father passed, well, declared himself president for life and then passed the, the power on to his son, who was then chased out of Haiti in 1986. And so Mano Charlemagne really from the 70s through the 80s was composing really deep, essentially unapologetically Haitian, you know, music of freedom for freedom in a way that only he could do. He had this beautiful, luscious, you know, baritone voice, um, his chords were simple, but he was clearly influenced by jazz. And man, the texts were so rich that I, I um, ended up finding a great many of them, including the one that I ended up um, um, covering as a, as a tribute to him um, at my school's library, the University at Buffalo. I mean, his work is well documented. Um, Jonathan Demi, who was the uh, the um, film producer for Silence of the Lambs, was very close to him and said that he could be literally anybody. I mean, he could do anything with that voice, but he decided to sing the woes of the Haitian people. He decided to be a voice for political freedom, but also personal freedom. He decided to speak on the human condition in, in ways that were not unprecedented, but definitely revolutionary, you know? And to me, music that goes to that depth, I think, serves the purpose of music in in uh, in an extra, extraordinary way, right? I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say serves the purpose best because you know that would be arbitrary and just you know almost wrong to say. But definitely to speak on the freedom of people, something as fundamental as the freedom of people, I think, is a noble pursuit for a musician to have. And so I was deeply inspired by him. And so I decided that I wanted to honor his legacy by um, arranging and publishing one of his 
well, his most popular song, in my opinion, called La Fume. Now, I'll just I'm going to I'm going to just give you a rundown of La Fume real quick and we can move on. Yeah, no worries. La Fume is the Haitian Creole word for smoke. And basically, after the Duvaliers were gone, right, there was a, a military junta that assumed power right after him. Um, no, no, that assumed power. And then the election happened. And then there was a coup by that same military junta, those generals. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as a result, the democratically elected president of the time, Aristide, was sent into exile. And so was Manu. You know, and uh, the legend goes that on his way into exile at the airport, he wrote La Fume. And basically, it's a metaphor uh, likening the military junta to smoke, a smoke that is, you know, blinding, that is inducing cough, right, that is filling up a kitchen. But then he also likens the people to a homeowner, right, a female homeowner is like, all the homeowners got to do is crack a window and you're gone, right? You may seem overwhelming. You may see. And to me, that's, that's such a powerful metaphor. That's very powerful. You know, it's, it's like, it's like, yes, smoke can, you know, suffocate you if put in the wrong place. But at the end of the day, it's something that only seems small because the people who owns the country is allowing it to happen. And so it's, it's it's basically a reminder of insignificance to to the tyrants of of, of his time, and I, I think the beauty of that, both in the poetry and the music, is so. I mean, the song is in minor. If you listen to the original, it's it's just him and a guitar, and you know, you know, it's I, at the end of the day, I I can only hope that I've captured the essence of it still in in, in the arrangement that I wrote. Um, I've also added a small Latin section at the end that is of my own doing that just happened to feel right while we're in the studio. And I wrote a couple words down and made it happen. But it was a wonderful experience, you know, with the musicians that I worked with, um, with my friend GV Pluvios, um, um, video producer who did the entire shoot by himself and made it happen. But um, yeah, it's on Spotify. It's on iTunes. It's um, everywhere you listen to music, really. Uh, so go check it out. There's also a music video to accompany it. It's it's on um, it's on YouTube, and the spelling is L A F I M E N Lafime. All right. Yeah. It's, and uh, it, uh, I'm I'm gonna if, p- definitely put this in the uh, cadence bio. Right. So uh, if you're watching this right now, the links Please. in the bio. Go check. <laughs> Please that out. get us to seven thousand views. <laughs> Anybody. <laughs> Uh, yeah, man, that's a very, very deep, very, very powerful story. Um, yes, and and uh, I'm really inspired just hearing about this guy's story now. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I, I encourage everybody because his his legacy, both social, political and musical, is well documented through articles. Um, um, there are many of his interviews, um, um, I think, uh, preserved at Duke University. They have a they have an online um not forum they have an online i guess storage you know dedicated to him and his work 
And so if, if you want to check out some of the different articles about him, he ended up being mayor of Fort-au-Prince. He did a lousy job at that. <laughs> that, that, that. That is besides the point. And he admitted to that himself. So I think I'm not, you know, staining his legacy by saying that. Yeah. But other than that, man, he had a remarkable life course. And so I encourage, you know, anybody who's a lover of music, who's a lover of history to go into, um, um, to go, to look up Manu Shalmai you know, and, and learn a little bit more about them. It's, it's worth your time. Yeah, definitely. Sounds like a great man. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, be doing a uh, right to the platform if we didn't close out with a short discussion, at least about uh, Haiti. Um, it, I know I, I, I was so shocked. Um, I have strong ties to the Haitian community. A lot of my right. uh, best friends are Haitian. And right. um, uh, I was so shocked to hear about this earthquake uh, when it happened a few weeks ago. And uh, I, I've frankly been very disappointed with the, the sentiments of the, the Caribbean community uh, regarding this, uh, because the people I've heard talk about it say things like, well, you know, uh, voodoo needs to stop. That's why, you know, and stuff that <laughs> oh, me man. Up a little bit. All right. First of all, I'm not here to change anybody's views about voodoo, but um, I would say judge having critical thinking is about treating most popular opinions as if they're inherently wrong and seeking the actual truth behind it. Okay. Almost everything that we know about voodoo is wrong. (laughs) Almost everything that is commonly known about voodoo is wrong. I'm not a practitioner of voodoo, Uh but I've made my intellectual duty, my diligence in regard to it, just like I would have if I had spent my entire life in Saudi Arabia and didn't know anything about Christianity and had to research it. Uh I think that's the respect that should be paid to any creed, any type of religion that you don't know anything about. You don't make assumptions because you don't know. So as I understand it, voodoo is an ancestral religion that honors the ancestors that have passed on as if they are in a different realm and people you know practice that in a variety of ways we're not here to discuss that but to regard that as the evil that keeps a country like haiti in in the place that it's in right now is a cheap shot it's lazy you know it's lazy there's so much more to be learned let me just lay the groundwork okay haiti is by far In all of world history, as far as I know, or at the very least in all of Western history, the only country to have effectively won, started and won a slave revolt that has resulted in the formation of a country. Not once before in the history of the world has that happened. And it's the first free black republic in the world. Now, I know many of you who are Caribbean have heard this before. Um, So it sounds like kind of a cliche, but let me put that into perspective, okay? The U.S. became a nation in 1776. Haiti became a free nation in 1804. Now, an African-American did not have the right to vote until 1965. My mother was born in 58. Put that into perspective. Yeah. Okay, now let me show you how big of a, of a world player Haiti has been 
and why it's so important to understand that the fact that Haiti is in this you know, geopolitical predicament today is no happenstance. While the U.S. was going through its westward expansion, Louisiana was a big block that stopped it because it was French territory. And in order for them to go further west, they either had to go to war with the French and take the land by force or purchase it from them. And they, were, they had no interest in selling because at the time, Haiti, check this, was producing three quarters of the world's entire supply of sugar, which is akin. Sugar was such a big business by then that it that is comparable to what oil is right now in the world. Right. It was France's richest colony. We had all the money. Okay, now check it out. With the Haitian Revolution, Haitians having kicked Napoleon's army well, Napoleon's army's butt twice in a row. Right. People who couldn't even read, man. <laughs> it bankrupt the entire nation of France to the point that it had to sell to the U.S. So the U.S., as you know it today, would not exist had Haitians not gained their independence. This is how big of a nation they were. Okay, fast forward. Dessaline became emperor of Haiti thereafter offered to Thomas Jefferson to purchase every single slave in America. Every single one. I did not. So Haitians were in a position to basically end slavery a full century in America before it, you know, because we talk about the emancipation. That's not the same thing as abolishing slavery, right? So Haitians could have single-handedly abolished all of slavery in America had Jefferson accepted to sell to Dessaline all the slaves that were on American soil. This is well-documented, it's not a lie. You can look it up, there are books. It's, it's a well-documented subject. Now, that's not all. Haiti, after having won its independence, went on an entire independence campaign through Latin America. And, and again, this is well-known, armed all of those revolutionaries in Latin America to go fight wars. And if you look, the, Haitians, the Haitian flag is red and blue. There is red and blue in almost every Latin American flag as, as basically um, uh, a tribute yeah. to the role that the Haitians have played. And finally, Greece. Greece, what about to Greece? this day, recognizes Haiti as a major player in gaining their independence from the Ottoman Empire. We sent munitions, we sent ammo, and ships, and soldiers, and money to sustain the Greek independence against the Ottoman Empire. We were a geopolitical giant in world history. Now, for this white dominated Western culture to have a black country as powerful as we were was a threat to all of Western prosperity because it was based on the, on, on the, on the false precedent that white people were superior to all other races, not just black people, every other race. Right. And to have a self-governing prosperous nation was not in the stars for them. It didn't look good for them. So 
1822. I, I, I may be wrong about that date, so double check it. With the backing of the United States and Canada, France forced Haiti to pay back to it the equivalent of $21 billion in today's money. That's larger than some countries. That's three times some countries' GDP today. Yeah. Okay. More, more than three, actually. <laughs> okay. So to pay that back. Now, if you doubt that the U.S. were in cahoots with, um, with France. Oh, by the way, that debt, that repayment for the debt of the independence was under the threat of force that they would come back and invade us again. And we didn't yeah, finish like, paying for it until 1947. That's two years after the Second World War. Now, between 1825 and 1947, that debt was collected by an American bank, still known today as Citibank. I mean, come on. <laughs> Get it together, y'all. Voodoo, let's talk about the fact that most countries are afloat today as a result of either of one of those two things or both. Economic prosperity, which happens with the accumulation of wealth over the years, which we were robbed of. And that's just one instance of it, okay? Because I haven't talked about the Haitian occupation by some of the most racist Southern Marines between 1915 and 1934. Let's keep that in mind. Look that up too. These people massacred 3,000 Haitians in one day. So let's, let's, let's stay with me here. Yeah. Now, that debt wasn't finished, wasn't um, um, repaid fully until 1947 by an American bank. And then we had embargoes. And then we had, you know, American intervention and the intervention of so many different powers over the years that have resulted in what we have right now. I mean, well documented for the last earthquake, okay, the Red Cross, the Red Cross collected most of the money and gave 10 cents for every dollar that they, con that they collected, okay? We've been run amok by NGOs and international organizations and stuff. This is not a spiritual battle. This is a clear geopolitical, socioeconomic crisis that is induced upon us, not just by our own internal forces, because I'm not absolving Haitians of the many mishaps that have happened over the years, not just mishaps, but some, some clear you know, mismanagement. Right. on the part of Haitian, corrupt Haitian leaders. But man, even if we had all of that sorted out, we still would be against one of the most sizable international threats possible. I mean, I would say that Haiti being the, the powerhouse that it is and having this giant place that it fills in, in world history, I think every Black person on the face of this planet um, should make it their duty to at least research and know about Haitian history. And I'm not just saying that because I'm Haitian. I'm saying this is the only nation that we know of that has, you know, successfully revolted against its slave masters and won. Right. For, that, for that fact alone, it's worth researching and Absolutely. looking into. Anyway, let's talk about the earthquake, okay? The earthquake happened. The earthquake, I think, shouldn't have been as deadly as it was. And this is where I'm going to blame every single person who has been in power in Haitian government for the last 10 years. After this catastrophe, I think it should have been our duty 
their duty. I, I don't want to say our, because if I had anything to do with this at all, we wouldn't be in this predicament. But um, I think that if something this, uh, you know, this of this magnitude happens to your people, where you lose 250,000 people in one day, 35 seconds, um, I think you have to make it your duty that if something like this were to happen again, you would never lose it in the way that you did. And the Haitian government in the last 10 years, regardless of the administration, has done an incredibly, an incredibly poor job at, pre at preparing itself to respond in kind to this catastrophe, whether by demolishing all the ill-constructed um, um, buildings, you know, on whatever side, because Haiti sits on tectonic plates. Two yeah. major, you know, um, 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 lines run through Haiti. Exactly. Faults run through Haiti. One of them through the southernmost part of the country that just experienced this earthquake. Another one in the northernmost part of the country. And so um, it is guaranteed, right, that it's not a matter of whether earthquakes will happen. It's that they absolutely will. They have in the past. Yeah. It's a matter of when. Right. And so I will base this primarily on Haitian governmental failure to adequately prepare because we've lost close to a thousand people. We didn't have to lose one. Earthquakes like this passed in California several times over the last five years. We haven't heard a blip in the news. Yeah. So it's not so much the natural catastrophe, but it's oh, so let's let's put the whole superstitious, you know, um, conclusions away. OK, if your country sits on a fault. The earth's going to shake. That's just, there's nothing spiritual about that. That's pure science. Look it up. Okay. But also, I think um, knowing that the natural catastrophe is imminent, now the, the remainder of, 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 um, of the variables is just that we know how, we, we learn how to prepare for it. So it's going to happen regardless. How do we minimize its impact when it does happen. And that is the fault of Haitian, um, you know, officials and the Haitian government. But let's talk about government. We just, we had a presidential assassination not two months ago. Right, right. Barely two months ago, if even. I don't, I don't even remember when it happened. I'm like, I think, yeah, I think it's uh, just about a month ago. Yeah. So, so you have a major natural catastrophe on the heels of a presidential assassination. As we speak, Haiti has no president right now today. Yeah. Except Just the, the prime minister. Yeah. The acting prime minister, yeah. prime minister. Right. <laughs> and there's even some, you know, some talk around the legality of his um, 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 ratification as prime minister. So again, almost nothing in my experience in my short life almost nothing happens by accident hmm. especially in the world of politics almost nothing is without cause and if we care to look deeply enough even as artists even as musicians even as whoever we are the goal is to search for truth yeah what do you think what do you think was behind the assassination of uh, the president Oh, man, if you're talking about, um, I don't know, sharing possibilities, there's there's too much. There's too much. There, there are too many variables in this for me to say with any kind of honesty 
that I know for a fact, but there were many, many different variables. You know, he went after uh, the rich oligarchy that is essentially foreign, that has been holding Haiti's um, economic um, um, economic power basically hostage for the last few years, for the last 50 years, I would say. Um, and, you know, a lot of these families are well known and they own, they basically have a monopoly over um, a lot of Haiti's main um, um, sources of revenue, be it the importation of certain prime materials, be it um, um, having the largest supply of you know, commonly consumed goods like rice or something like that. And so he went after some of them who had government contracts that were unregulated for years. But I can't even confirm that he himself was clean, you know? So he basically was at odds with too many powers and he didn't have the backing, the full backing of the international community either. Because let's not, let's not be naive, okay? Um, whoever's deciding to assassinate a president in in the Caribbean, a one hour flight, well, one and a half hour flight from Miami and four hours from New York. You can't just do it of your own volition. You got, you got, you got to at least, you know, um, um, have some backing. It may not be official backing, but you have to have some backing to do to carry that out successfully and come out. Because to this day, there is the the um, the um, um, the search for the actual person behind the assassination is still fruitless. We don't, yeah. we don't, we don't know. And Probably because it's not just a person, it's an organization. It's not a person. It's got to be more than that behind it. And again, we can speculate all day, but I'm saying that the forces which were against some of his positions were many. It's, dishonest to point to any one of them right now and say, oh, it was so-and-so. Nobody actually knows. But we may not know exactly who it is, but we know who it ain't. <laughs> I'm going to say that much. <laughs> I'm going to say that because we're not going to believe that this was some isolated incident. Nobody gets up one morning and say, you know what? I'm going to go kill a president. Nah. Yeah, yeah. You know, this happened over years of resentment. And I think he got it in the way of people he shouldn't have gotten in the way in without some serious backup and he paid with his life um now i'm not but i'm gonna make this clear before he died i was a fierce um um a fierce denunciator of some of the practices that i saw was happening with his government as any honest people any honest person should however Assassinating a president that you don't agree with is never the answer, you know, that's, yeah. that's never, yeah, that's barbaric to a point that I can't even describe this. We shouldn't be having presidential assassinations in 2021, yeah. you know, um, um, again, this is too vast a topic to have a definite answer um, for all that I know is that at the end of the day, the victims are the people. They're the people who don't have a say, who have to go out in the streets day to day to make their daily bread. And now can't because of the political instability of a country that their ancestors fought for with, bought with their blood. So it's, it's an unfortunate situation. And I'm not into wishful thinking at all, but I'm looking forward to a time where 
you know, Haitians will not just unite, because that sounds like a kumbaya kind of moment, but I think that Haitians will become aware of what the focal point should be in the moment. And even for a short time, get together against that, fight that, ensure their own, you know, livelihood for themselves, by themselves, and then figure the rest out later. Uh, I'm definitely um, I, I really appreciate you breaking down a lot of this stuff, because I'll tell you, I'm St. Lucian. And, you know, I, I only became aware of of the impact of Haiti on world history when I took a, a course in college. Right. <laughs> this wasn't something I was taught uh, right. in, in primary school or secondary school slash high school. Um, uh, it took me up until university for me to learn and say, wait, what? Wait, wait, what? <laughs> wait, what happened? <laughs> as we know it, yeah, you know, isn't, that, isn't, isn't, as we yeah. should know it better, isn't, isn't yeah. taught properly in school. Yeah, it's, um, uh, I mean, I appreciate you giving me a platform to talk about it as well. Thank you. Uh, absolutely, man. I'm, I'm passionate about uh, people learning more about Haitian history. And uh, I, I think uh, that will lead to a, a more informed Caribbean that has, uh, that is more supportive of Haiti. And empathetic. And empathetic, absolutely. <laughs> right, um, yes, sir. Yeah, I, I definitely want to thank you uh, for joining me today. Here, man. Um, I, I, I was laughing when I heard that you were Seventh-day Adventist, because I am too. Um, oh, so. good, good. <laughs> We've got a lot of commonalities. We can go from there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> kind of, I'm drawing them. Yes, sir. I really appreciate the platform. I appreciate it. And please, if you don't follow Caribbean Cadence and you're watching this video, please make it a point to do so. I think it is very important in the spirit of... Um, um, unity and the spirit of a unified Caribbean who identifies as people from the same region of the world for us to have platforms where we can freely express ourselves um, through the love of music and art in general. So please, this is a movement that I'm 100% behind. Support it, support it, support it. Yeah, man. I appreciate that, man. I appreciate you believing in what we're doing. Um, and I really want to thank you for joining me today. It was um, my pleasure, really. Yeah, man. Uh, for those of you watching, those of you with us, we will be back next month. Uh, we'll be back on the third week of September. I know what you're saying. <laughs> I, I said it. Third week of September. I got you. All right. Yes, so, all right. You have a good one. Thank us. you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Mono's music is able to speak to people all around the world and that universal factor is why so many of the people who work with me who are not familiar with his music or with Haitian culture feel at home speaking about topics that are universally relevant to all of us.